remember the glory of what we've just beheld. So that's why we're going to be turning today to Psalm 51 for our sermon text, Psalm 51. This is found on page 560 in the Bibles in front of you. Please now stand out of respect for God's inspired word. This is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you that there is a path from filthiness and sin to true cleanness, true cleanness of conscience. Thank you that you've made a way decisively to be have, to have guilt removed and to truly stand before you confidently. And Lord, we long to see the glory of that way, that way of salvation, that way of the gospel. And we pray that you would encourage us today with the hope that we have in Jesus alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, Zach and Anna, I'm... Um, sure you've already discovered that it's awfully hard to keep little guys clean. They're always making messes, and uh, just wait until they're mobile. (laughs) Uh, It's going to be a whole new level. It's almost on the level of a puppy, and thankfully, both babies and puppies are specially made by God to be cute, which is very important for their survival. (laughs) And there are these physical messes that we all have to deal with, but then there are also spiritual messes. When a baby dirties himself, very simple. If only it was always this simple, right? You just change the diaper, right? And it's all good. Happiness again. Well, what do we do? What do we all do, babies and older people included, when we foul our souls? 
And a deeper question even is, how do we even know the state of our souls? I mean, you can look, look in the diaper and find out the state of the baby, but how do you figure out, how do you actually know whether your soul is clean or filthy? Indeed, this is one of the grave and most desperately serious maladies of this world, is that there are many who are outside of the church, outside of Christ, who think of themselves as perfectly clean. I'm all good. I'm not as bad as that person. They think of themselves that they're clean when actually their souls are filthy with sin, and they don't see it. And then, paradoxically, isn't this crazy, but there are many true believers in Christ who are believing in him, members of his church, who think of themselves as foul and unworthy and unclean undeserving of God's favor and of his presence when actually, objectively, they are clean. But they don't see themselves rightly. And so I just want to start by asking you, how do you view your own soul? How do you think about yourself? Do you think of your soul as stained with sin, or do you think of it as clean? And the follow-up is, how do you know you're right? How do you think of yourself clean or dirty in your soul, and how do you know you're right? Psalm 51 is God teaching us how to think about these things, how to answer those questions from God's perspective. He's the one who knows, right? He's going to first show us the the stain of sin. That's what Psalm 51 helps us to see first, the stain of sin. And we're going to talk about the way that God makes for truly cleaning our soul and knowing that it's truly clean. And then we'll finish with what it means to live as those whom God has washed clean. As we begin, the preface of the psalm, which we actually didn't read, but um, it says there the context that David is praying this psalm after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And these are horrific sins. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then to cover it up, he had killed her husband, Uriah. So these are things that are horrific, and they're also things that you just can't take back. You can't undo those things. When they are done, they are done. And I think we can relate to this, the, 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 the power of how sin haunts us after we have done sin, right? Are there sins in your life? Think about this. Are there sins in your life that haunt you? Things that you just wish you could take back, wish you could undo, but you can't. Well, what should especially alarm us are the sins that we're not aware of. David surprises us in verse 4. He gets us thinking about this. When he says to God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And we're listening to this. We're we're thinking to ourselves, wait a second. He he also sinned against (laughs) Bathsheba and Uriah, lots of other people too. True. But in this moment of clarity, what is filling David's vision is his sin, particularly against God. In all that he's thinking about, it's, it's what he's now coming to realize eclipses all these other sins against other people is the huge, horrible weight of his sin against God. And yet, if you were to go on the street and just ask people what are the biggest sins they regret— Very few people will actually say, I regret making an idol out of this world. I regret 
refusing to give God the honor and worship that he deserves. I regret and feel tremendous guilt for failing to love God with all my heart. Sins against God. Most of our sins were preoccupied with the things we've done to other people. And we lose sight of the greatest sins. The, the biggest sins are the sins that we have committed against the holy God who made us and who saved us. And indeed, even as David is thinking about those sins who has, that he's committed against Bathsheba and Uriah, he's saying, ultimately, those sins were sins against my creator. He realizes that as he saw Bathsheba's beauty and he made an idol out of her, it was just that. She was an idol. She was a replacement to God. He saw her as a way of satisfying himself in a way that God couldn't satisfy him, so he thought. And so he chose her over God. And in making that choice, it was a sin against her, but it was primarily a sin against God, saying, I would rather have her than you. Same thing with Uriah. Looking for this alternative way to make the sin quiet. Not turning to the way that God had made for making the sin right. And so the very first command, isn't it, isn't it so striking that when God gives his ten commandments, the very first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the most important one. And yet, tragically, when we think about our own sin, we tend to forget those commands about loving God, and we're just focusing on these other things. And so, true conviction is when we're sad, not just because, oh, look at the consequences in this human relationship to the wrong things I said, or wrong things I did. True conviction is when we're also sad because of what we had done against God, where we're regretting not just, oh, that we got caught, or oh, look at these consequences, but I have wronged the God who made me and who has given everything to me. I've not honored him as my true treasure and as my true delight and joy. I've traded the fountain of living waters for these broken cups that can't hold any water. And so he says, against you, against you only have I sinned. Do you, do you feel regret for the sins you've committed against God. And as we're starting to reflect on how huge that sin is, as we're starting to get a grasp on how vast sin reaches, it isn't just the things we've done to other people, it's also what we've done against God, we start to realize, okay, my sin is far bigger than I thought. I am carrying a mountain <laughs> of sin. And we have to understand here that there's a difference in how we use the word guilt, if we're really going to grasp this. There's guilt as a feeling. Guilt is the subjective experience of, here's what I feel bad about. But then there's guilt in the objective sense of, what actually are we guilty of? What have we actually done that's wrong? And what I'm trying to help us all to see is that the subjective guilt, the guilt that we feel, is always way smaller to the actual objective guilt of the sin that we have actually committed. And this is true even for babies and small children. And you may ask yourself, okay, well, what guilt can a baby feel? Well, in the case of subjective guilt, probably none, Right? But what guilt do babies actually have? And again, most people would probably say, well, none. They're, they're little 
little tiny people. They haven't done anything yet. But verse 5, we need to reckon with this. Verse 5 says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What's going on here? David is looking back on his life. He's saying, wow, look where I've gotten in this sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And yet he's looking back and he's realizing that the trajectory towards those horrific sins began all the way back when he was first born. And he realizes that in his heart, when he was first born, he was born a sinner. He was born a corrupt person. You don't have to ever teach a little kid to disobey. They do it all by themselves. Why? Because in sin, we were born. In sin, our mothers even conceived me. Romans 5 says it's even, even worse than just being born with the natural tendency towards sin. There's also the sin that Adam committed as our representative, as the head of all humanity. And when Adam committed that first sin, eating of the fruit that he was forbidden to eat, because he represented all people, including the little people, when we are born, we are born guilty. Guilty of that sin. Guilty as though we ourselves had eaten of the fruit. And so there's the guilt that we actually commit from the sin that we actually commit. There's the guilt that is upon us as children of Adam. And you realize this is a heavy load. And you start to wish, I wish I could get rid of this load. I wish I could get this stain off of me and rid myself of this burden. And here's what most people do to scrub themselves, to clean themselves. They do a lot of little good things to make the guilty feelings go away. They give a little to charity. They do something extra nice for their spouse. And on the surface, these things look generous and good, but really, it's about guilt. It's about making the guilty feelings go away. And remember the Pharisees? They were doing the same thing on an even higher level in Jesus' day. He, they were so zealous about doing good works, and yet Jesus says, Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and get this, listen, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. So they're, they're washing the outside of themselves with all kinds of good deeds. And yet the inside, he says, is full of greed and self-indulgence. If you actually could look inside, you'd see the horrific stain of sin. And stains, aren't they terrible? I can't tell you how many like clothes I just bought. <laughs> and like the, the grease, you know, leaps out of the pan and like lands right there. And you're just like, oh man, no getting this thing out. <laughs> and yet, God wants us to think about stains of our souls too. Stains is things that you can't get clean from your soul. Jeremiah 2 uses a very vivid language here. He says, verse 22, Though you wash yourself with lye and clean yourself with much soap, so lye and soap, the strongest cleaners of the ancient world, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. And this is the first point we have to grasp. You cannot clean the stain of your own guilt. You can't. You cannot clean your own soul. doesn't matter how much you try, how much good you seek to do to offset the bad that you have done. In the end, you will say, Psalm 51, verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You cannot clean the stain 
of your own soul. And that's where the genius and the glory of Psalm 51 can really start to shine. David, he's realizing this. My sin is always before me. I am, I am just in total guilt. I'm just wallowing in this, and I cannot get out. I cannot get clean. And so what does he do? He turns to God. And this is just so simple and yet so counterintuitive to us sinners. He turns to God. He says, verse 2, Wash me, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you see how he's taking that uncleanable stain of his soul and he's taking it to God and he's saying, Help. And the word create in verse 10 is very well chosen. Create in me a clean heart. It's, it's actually a rare word, but it's very familiar to us from the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Create in me now a clean heart. And what are we saying? We're saying, look, the stain is on that level of like the uncleanable stain on a piece of clothing. Where it, it reaches a point where this, it's just so bad that even with the best cleaners or whatever, this is permanent, and you need a new pair of clothes. You need a new set of clothing. And this is what we all need in our souls. Like, it's not just a matter of, oh, well, let's just rub this off a little bit, and then everything's going to be good. No, you actually need a new heart, a new spirit. And do you realize even precious little guys like Owen and Emmett, they need, even newly born people, need this new spirit, this new heart. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. And we need God to make us new. We need God to create in us new and clean hearts. Some stains are so bad, you need to start over. And the glory of the gospel is that that is precisely what God has done in Jesus Christ. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11 that was read earlier? He says, you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So this is what happens. We come to the Lord with our sin-stained souls, and what does God give us in return? In his mercy, he doesn't give us the judgment that we deserve. He gives to us hearts and souls that are made clean and pure through the blood of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? The blood of Jesus makes us clean. Like, blood is one of those things that stains. But not when it comes to sin. And this is something that we've already seen going through the Old Testament, is the blood is God's appointed way of making sins clean. Why is that? It's because blood means that a life was lost. A, a life, their, their life blood was shed. And what's happening when Jesus went to the cross for us? His life was given. His blood was shed. He died in the place of us and received in himself what all our stains deserved. And so now, his blood is the best soul detergent ever. It's the only soul detergent. And this is, by the way, what I think is so beautiful about an infant baptism. All baptisms are beautiful. But what does it say when it says that, that we are baptized? That the very construction of the word to be baptized is 
passive. It's something that happens to us. We can't wash ourselves. We need God to wash us. That's the whole logic of Psalm 51. We need God to cleanse us and do the cleansing we never could. When someone is baptized, it is a passive affair. It is something where the little guy who can't do anything receives as a gift something from outside, a gift from the living God. And so, what God is doing in us is making us clean, but I want us to see this, and this is part of the glory of the gospel. He's doing something that we never could have done. He's cleansing what we could never have cleansed, but here there's still more. What happens here in in, in baptism, what's pictured to us is a bath, basically. It's getting clean, getting washed, and yet, isn't it just so frustrating? Any of us who have, uh, and when you, 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 you give your kids a bath, it just like takes two minutes and they're dirty again, running into the mud. Or like you've just deep cleaned this room, you've worked hours and hours, it looks so amazing, you come the next day and like, how did this become chaos already? <laughs> right? In this world, cleansing always leads to eventually dirt and chaos again. The glory of the gospel is that God's cleansing is different. When God cleanses us, we are clean indeed. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. What's the promise of the gospel? When you are made clean by Jesus Christ, you are made unstainably clean. You are clean and you remain clean forever. David is so confident in God's cleansing power. He knows that if God cleanses him, it will be an effective cleansing. And so he says to him, deliver me from blood guiltiness, this is verse 14, and my tongue will sing aloud for your salvation. He's confident in what God is going to do. And that is what baptism is saying to us. All of our baptisms continue to this day to proclaim this to us. You are not just clean, you are unstainably clean by the blood of Jesus. Like, his sacrifice is that complete. It washes away not just the past sins and the past regrets. It washes us clean from all sins, even present and future sins. If you are washed with the blood of Jesus, you are clean, and you bear your guilt no more. And what I want us to think about as we're trying to apply this is, is that actually how we think of ourselves? Like, how do you deal with guilt? How do you deal with the feeling inside of you of regret and remorse and wishing I could undo this thing or wishing I could forget the fact that this is part of my past? Well, there's all kinds of bad ways of doing this. Um, We can beat ourselves up, tell ourselves that we're worthless. We just ram it home, basically becoming the voice of Satan inside our heads, who's constantly accusing us and saying that we're, we're just totally unlovable for what we have done. That's a bad way of handling guilt. We could try to buy off the person that we feel that we've wronged, doing lots of nice things for that person, including God, trying to say, oh God, look, I've done all these things. Please, please, please don't think ill of me. And then, of course, We could try to make ourselves better than other people and think, "Ah, at least I'm not as bad as that person, and so our guilt feels better. Look, none of these work, and we know none of these work. Only Jesus can make us clean. 
And so this is what David's teaching us to do in Psalm 51. If God only can make you clean, you must go to God only to be clean. We need to openly acknowledge our sin and our fault to him. Have you done this? Have you openly acknowledged your sin and your fault to him? And have you then cast yourself entirely on his mercy? It's the only way. You're not going to clean yourself. And then, if you have done this, and I hope many people here have, here's where you now need to apply this. You need to believe that you are clean. This is where I want to land today. If God has sovereignly ordained baptism as the mark of the inner cleansing that happens when we believe in Jesus Christ, then if we really believe what God is declaring to us to be true in baptism, you are now my washed clean disciple, you need to believe that. We need to actually internalize that our souls actually now are righteous and holy and acceptable in God's sight. Let me just paraphrase a few scriptures that say this, I think, so powerfully, but I'm going to reword them as words directly to you. You were washed. You were sanctified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, do you believe it? Ephesians 5, 26, you were cleansed by Christ washing you with water in the word. Hebrews 9, 14, you have been purified in your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you believe you have a pure conscience? Brothers and sisters. Hebrews 10, 22, your heart has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Those regrets, God doesn't remember them. Hebrews 12, 24, your Savior's sprinkled blood, your Savior, Savior's sprinkled blood speaks a better word than all your sin. I could go on. But do you see? Your baptism, though it is once and done long ago, it still speaks. It is still testifying to your conscience. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more guilt for you. No more stain. And so do you believe it? Here is the sign that you do. If you have deep joy in God's unshakable love, Anytime you're tempted based on circumstances or whatever to, te- to, to question God's love for you, you're like, no, not true. He's washed me clean. You just go back to your baptism. You remember, God has washed me clean. I don't bear that stuff anymore. I'm not going to let Satan trick me into thinking I'm still guilty of all that. Now, of course, there are some times after our baptisms where we have committed sins that are bad. All sins are bad, right? And what happens? What should we do after our baptisms when we've committed those sins? Well, it's just like in, in our relationship with our spouse. Are we still married even when we've sinned against them? Of course, we're still married. Is there something now between us, though, that's preventing the joy of that relationship? Yes, there is. So that's why every worship service when we come here, we begin by confessing our sins to God and having him renew that declaration over us clean, We bear this no more. We are now in fellowship. And so, our sin is no more. And will we make God a liar and say, I still feel guilty, therefore I must be guilty? May never be. May we say to ourselves, I am clean. I am made new in the blood of Jesus. And one last point. 
If we really understand what baptism means, we will be applying it to ourselves. We'll be saying to ourselves, I am not filthy anymore. I am clean by the blood of Jesus. I refuse to let Satan make me feel guilty anymore. But we will also change not just how we view ourselves, but how we view others. God, when he publicly marks people as his in baptism, when he publicly declares, this one's part of my family, he is instructing us on how we ought to view that person. How should I now view everyone who has been cleansed with the waters of baptism, including the little guys? How am I supposed to view those people who have have been washed clean with, with the waters of baptism, marked with this authoritative sign from God, how am I supposed to view those people as clean, as those who are in fellowship with God? And, of course, we can think of all kinds of objections, like, well, that person is just so annoying, and I honestly just, like, sometimes they just are making such terrible decisions, I really question whether they really even know God. No. You are not allowed to say that. You continue to believe the best about them. You continue to look at the kids of our church and say, you belong here. You are fellow Christians with me. Now, does this mean that we think that baptism automatically saves somebody and they don't have to actually believe to be truly saved? Of course, that's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that when God marks some, someone as his through the waters of baptism, we have no right to say they are not his. We instead welcome them and encourage them. And how does this play out? Well, like as a parent, when, uh, when a little, little kid sins, we don't say, well, this just shows you're not a real Christian. No, instead, what do we say? We say, Little dear one, that's not what Christians do. You're a Christian. Let's go to Jesus. Let's ask him for forgiveness. Let's ask him for the strength. Let's ask him for these things, expecting and understanding that you're in fellowship with him because you've been washed clean with his blood. So how do you view your fellow baptized Christians? Do you believe you are clean? Do you believe they are clean? If God cleanses us, we shall be clean indeed. If God washes us, we shall be whiter than snow. Let's believe it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this balm to our consciences. We are so often just tortured with regrets and the sins of our past. And at times, Lord, we are disposed to believe the worst about others. Forgive us. Forgive us for not seeing ourselves and not seeing others the way you do and not really believing that the gospel is true. We pray that, Lord, our baptisms will be a source of great and lasting encouragement, a real, something that really shapes our sense of identity, that we would consider ourselves clean, acceptable in your sight. And, Lord, not in the sense that we become proud and start thinking to ourselves that we've never done anything wrong, but rather such that we become grateful so thankful that you washed away something that we could never have washed away ourselves and that even though our sin is far greater than we know, your salvation covers it all. And so we pray, help us to believe and please help our unbelief.
We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.